just want to thank Pastor Scott for the opportunity to uh, be up here to preach and to share the pulpit with the elders and to allow us opportunity to, uh, to come and share. It is always a blessing and an honor to be here before you proclaiming the Word of God. And so thank you, Pastor Scott, for that. And, and also thank you, Pastor Scott, for giving me such an easy passage. Um, really appreciate that. Uh, every time when I was reading and doing things, most of the authors began their, uh, their writings about this verses. This is one of the most difficult verses to interpret. And so we're going to, and I was like, man. And then one author writes of how H.A.W. Uh, Meyer, who was a 19th century scholar, said uh, at one point, I have 14 viable interpretations for Mark 9, 49, and 50. I was like, are you kidding me? So thank you, Pastor Scott. Appreciate that. Now I know why you do this. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's not it at all. But in all seriousness, as we begin to look today, those difficulties that many people speak of and that these writers talk about, as I begin to look at it, those, those difficulties begin to reveal themselves in what I would consider some minor details of the passage. Who is the little ones that Jesus speaks of in the beginning? Who is everyone that is salted with fire? Is that the believer, the unbeliever, both? What is, what is the fire? And these questions begin to be raised and, and begin to, 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 to almost cloud the interpretation, but there are major themes that apply throughout. And there are major lessons that sometimes those minor details can distract us from. And so this morning as we get into it, I, I, we will talk a little bit about the minor things, but really my hope and my prayer is that we can focus on those major pieces that our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ was speaking to as He spoke that day. And as Jesus begins this passage and throughout this passage, He hits us with some hard truths and some warnings. And He uses a literary technique called hyperbole, which most of us have used in our own lives. Choosing something that is grand and great and bigger to show the value and the importance of it. So, I've been standing in line forever. This backpack weighs a ton. No, it doesn't. But the idea being that we realize just how heavy it is or how long we've been waiting in this line. And in the same way, Jesus uses hyperbole because he wants us to understand and to realize the seriousness of these things that he is speaking of. As he begins to talk about the reality of sin and of hell. And the seriousness of each of those. In the life of the believer and the unbeliever. And so he draws on hyperbole here to get that point across. And as we begin to look in verses 42 through 48, there's a, there's a phrase that comes up four times, causes to sin. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, if your hand causes you to sin, if your foot 
causes you to sin. If your eye causes you to sin. And so he has this phrase that he keeps bringing up again and again. And so I, I think it's good for us as we begin to look at this passage to get our mind around that phrase a little bit better. And so as we begin to look at it, the Greek word for this phrase is skandalizo, which literally means to set a snare. And so as you think about this in the context of what Jesus is saying, to set this snare, to, to uh, cause offense, to entice to sin. We begin to see the word picture that Jesus is drawing here. If these things entice you towards sin, get rid of them. If you've enticed a little one towards sin, it would be greater for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to continue on in that way. Wow. Do we begin to see the reality and the seriousness of where Jesus is taking us? Both those who are listening that day and those of us who read it today. To entice them towards sin. This is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 8.13 when he speaks about not eating meat. Sacrifice to idols because it could cause someone else to sin. But he says, therefore, if food causes my brother to sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to sin. And as he's talking there about that, he's talking about one who is, who is weaker in their faith, who is, who is not as, as firm as Paul is, who says, I know that, that idols are nothing and that this meat has no value other than to feed me. But those who are still struggling with that, if I would entice them towards sin by eating this, I will never eat it again. So this is where we find this phrase as Jesus begins to speak. And like I said at the beginning, as we, as we get into the verses here, there's been question over who are the little ones? in this passage that Jesus is referring to. Is it a child, as we saw in verse 36? As Jesus brought that child in amongst the disciples and began to share. Or is it someone with childlike faith who is not as mature in their walk with Christ? As as R.C. Sproul calls them, the simple Christian. Not meant in a negative way, but, but the Christian who simply says, I love Jesus and I want to follow him. That's about all I got. And those with childlike faith who just believe. And most likely this is who Jesus is referring to. But be it child or childlike faith, both are in this place of young in their faith and easily swayed in one direction or another. Easily encouraged and easily discouraged. Easily swayed toward truth. Towards sin. And so we find Jesus beginning to speak in this place. And no matter where that is, child or childlike, the bigger point here is someone who is mature in their faith, enticing one who is not as mature towards sin. Using their position as as a pastor, a mentor, a discipler to harm the faith 
of this young believer. And Jesus starts off with that, young, that strong metaphor. It'd be better for a millstone to be tied around their neck and then thrown into the sea. And the millstone that he's talking about here is not just this small little stone. It was this great stone used for crushing grain and, and was, was so heavy that one man couldn't move it by himself. But rather they would often tie a donkey to a stick attached to the stone so that the donkey could walk in circles and roll it and crush the grain. If you've seen that movie, The Star of Bethlehem and and, uh, The Star, I think it's just The Star, and the two donkeys, you know, the one who's going to end up carrying Mary to uh, Bethlehem, they're walking in a circle, right? And they have some fun with that. But that's that millstone right there. This thing that is too big for one man to handle. And Jesus says it would be better for that man to have it tied around his neck and to be thrown into the sea to experience this horrible death as the weight of the stone pulls him to the bottom and the surface disappears from sight as they await death. That is better than to continue on enticing this young in their faith to sin. Now does Jesus have a whole bunch of millstones lined up in some rope? No, but the warning is clear. The warning is clear. And now some people look at that and they say, whew, I'm off the hook. That's just people who are paid to, to teach the Bible. That's, that's pastors and, 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 you know, people in the church and, and seminary professors and Bible teachers and those things. I, thank you that I don't have that role and I'm not. I'm not a part of that. But I want to challenge you to think today. Because God has called each and every one of us to be a part of his kingdom and to be disciples to those that he brings into our life to share the gospel and to teach. Perhaps it's that person at your work who knows you're a Christian and just shared with you recently how they accepted Christ and they're now watching you. How am I an employee as a Christian? How do I do my job as a believer? Perhaps it's that neighbor who knows you're a Christian and is wondering about it themselves and maybe even just taking that step of salvation, seeing how do I live my life? How do I run my home as a Christian? Parents in Deuteronomy 6, God commissions us as the primary disciples of our children. Each of us has a place that God has called us in the kingdom to nurture the faith of the young believer. And the greater thing for us to remember is that we as believers, as those who are growing in our faith, must always be conscious of the effect our words and our actions have on the faith of those around us. that we are leading with grace that was first given to us and with love. As Pastor Scott shared a couple weeks ago, it's easy to, to hurt with the hurting, but to celebrate with those that seems like their prayers are getting answered and they're, you know, sometimes that's the harder place. And how are we in that celebrating with them, showing the rest of the world, setting that example for those who are watching us? to nurture their faith. 
As we head into verses 43 and 48 again, Jesus using hyperbole to drive home this point and remind his listeners then and us, his readers today, about the seriousness and the reality of hell. If your hand causes you to sin, it's better to cut it off than to go into hell with both. And the word that Jesus uses here for hell is is Gehenna. And what this word refers to is a valley to the southwest of Jerusalem. And and what took place in this valley in Old Testament times was this was the place when the people were, were, were... were lost in following other gods, that, that there were child sacrifices to the god of Moloch. This was the valley where that atrocity took place. And as they came out of that, knowing what happened there, they said, you know what? A place that wretched, the only thing it's good enough for is to be the trash dump. And so they took this deep valley and turned it into their dump. This place that once was seen as sacred, now defiled, by the refuse and the trash of men. And in this place was a place that that everything went, including dead bodies. The bodies of, of, of animals that have died and criminals who were executed and there was no family to bury them. They were thrown into Gehenna. And this was a place because of the amount of trash and refuse that was there. It was a continual fire that burned to consume those things so that the rotting flesh and the stench of that would not take over the valley. It wasn't just like, yeah, we go down on Fridays and set a fire to burn the week's trash. No, it was we have set a flame that never stops. It consumes all that it touches. And this was a place where the worm, as Jesus describes it, never dies. A place where the parasites always have a host of rotting flesh to consume. And so we see Jesus painting this picture for all who knew what Gehenna was. This picture of internal and external suffering. Continual. Unending. Where fires are never quenched and their worm never dies. And Jesus, in giving this vivid example of hell, begins to give an earthly perspective of this unworldly place that man's mind can yet not fully comprehend. To again remind them of the seriousness and the reality of hell. If your foot causes you, entices you towards sin, it is better to cut it off than to walk into Gehenna with two feet. If your eye causes you to entice you to sin, it is better to pull it out than to see with both eyes Gehenna as you arrive there. The sufferings in this temporary world are far worth it than the eternal suffering of Gehenna. Cut it out. Cut it off. Pluck it out. It is better to be lame for a moment and have heaven for eternity than to turn away from the things of God and choose sin. 
and have Gehenna on the other side. And so we see Jesus driving home this point. Hell is a wretched place. For the unbeliever who chooses sin, that is what awaits. For the believer who has chosen Christ, when those things begin to creep in, it is not our strength that we stand on in the first place, is it? It is the power of Christ within us that we can cut those things out and stand in the hope and the promise of things to come and pursue Christ. We follow hard after Him with great vigor. Oftentimes in today's society, we have brushed over the reality of hell. We have softened the pain in the recourse of sin. Sometimes even in the church, in an attempt to not scare off the unbeliever, we have softened that. Or other religions who have tried to get around the idea of it have have said it doesn't even exist. But Jesus is saying it is real. And it is horrible. It is better to suffer in the temporary than to be there for eternity. And so in our own lives, what are those things that are enticing us towards sin? And are we willing to walk away from them? Those things that are not of God. A relationship. A habit. A hobby. A job. Are there things in our lives that God has been showing us Do not belong there. And with that great vigor of lop it off the hand, pluck it out the eye, that is the vigor that we approach that to get it gone. Praise the Lord, it's hyperbole and that we're not all walking around with lips and no hands and bumping into each other because we can't see, right? Because we all have been there. We all struggle with these things. But Jesus says, it is real. And it must be dealt with. That is our job as the believer. I'll share with you a story uh, about Billy Graham and, and one of the times that we that you see this in his own life. It says, years ago, Billy Graham was in England for a crusade. And when he entered the hotel room where he was to stay, he immediately moved to unplug the television because he knew that British television had nudity in its broadcast. When Dr. Graham reached down to pull the plug from the wall, he saw that there was no plug. It was hardwired in. Without hesitating, Billy Graham took the cord and jerked it as hard as he could, pulling it out of the wall, destroying the plaster all the way up to the ceiling. And as he turned to the shocked men who were standing in the room with him, he simply said, we can replace the plaster. I don't want to jeopardize what God wants to do in this crusade by allowing impurity into my life. Some of us may have thought, let's just turn the TV around. Let's call the hotel and see if they can do something about this. But there was such vigor 
in his life to remove those things, those temptations, those enticements towards sin. He said, I don't care if it destroys the wall. I don't care if it cost me something to replace this. What God is doing in the Crusades and what he is asking of me and what he is calling of me in my life is far greater of importance. Wow. We kind of laugh at the story and the wall, but such vigor. And a little more recent, in 2017, Mike Pence, the vice president, took a stand. You see, another, another thing that Billy Graham and, and four of his men in leadership did to make sure that their organization remained above reproach in all things that they did, they, they put together what was known as the Modesto Manifesto. And it was these four rules that they would follow at all times within their organization to make sure there was no room for scandal, for accusations, or for sin to creep in. And one of those rules was that they, as men, would never be alone with a woman other than their wife. So there's never opportunity for an accusation. Or a temptation. And so Mike Pence, knowing the role that God had put him in as vice president of the United States, and what he had called him to do as a leader, said, I will practice this same, became known as the Billy Graham rule. To not be alone with a woman other than my wife. And the things that I do and the meetings that I have. And the media had a field day with it. Calling him sexist. Saying that he's not trustworthy and that, that lunch with a lady is different than a candlelit dinner. And all he's trying to do is push women down. But he stood firm. He said, my God is worth more than any media coverage. And what God has called me to do and given me the opportunity to do is more important and will not be hindered by a scandal. The vigor that God calls us to approach these things and to remove them. It is better to live life lame, maimed, or blind. The Gehenna. It may cost us something on her, here on earth, but our treasure is in heaven. And then we come to verses 49 and 50. And Jesus brings up the metaphor of salt. And again, the questions. Who is everyone? Believers, unbelievers, both. Who will be salted with fire? What does that mean? And salt served three main purposes. To preserve, to purify, and to season. To be salted with fire for the unbeliever. is referenced earlier in these verses is to, some say, to be preserved in the fires of hell. To suffer for all eternity. To be salted with fire for the believer is to be purified. Through the fire of trials, God's discipline, our own self-judgment and sacrifice, as we work to cut out those things that cause us to sin, that entice us towards sin. And as we read in verse 50, we are reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. In verse 50, Jesus says, salt is good. It has a purpose. 
But if it loses that saltiness, what can make it salty again? And in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. Salt is good and serves a good purpose, but if it's no longer salty, it's no good. And how can we make it salty again? And Jesus then says, have salt in yourselves. Be the seasoning of the gospel in the world and in the place where I've placed you. Be the seasoning of the gospel and the relationships that I've given you. Be the seasoning of the gospel in the workplaces where I've placed you. Be the seasoning of the gospel in your family, in your neighborhood, and in your lives. Salt is good. It hasn't lost its saltiness. Have salt within you. Be seasoned. And be at peace with one another. As he finishes. Most likely referring back to the argument the disciples were having in verses 33 and 34 about who is the greatest. But church, let me challenge you in the same way. God calls us to be at peace with one another. God calls us to live in community. There is a natural tension of human relationship. We are going to bump into one another. And that's okay. It's what we do on the other side of the bump. But we will be seasoned with the salt. Do we live our lives in that place of Matthew 18, returning to the one that we've bumped into and seeking to right the wrong, to renew the relationship and to keep those short accounts? And in our living together in community as believers, can we be the season of the gospel to those who are watching? To those who would choose violence, over reconciliation. Be at peace with one another. Because it is that place that our witness is the greatest. And we may be fully seasoned with salt. Anytime I preach or teach, I try to answer two questions that I feel are the most important. The first would be, how does the reality and the truth of the cross apply to what we're studying and what we're looking at? Because it's applicable everywhere, isn't it? So how do we get back to the cross? How does it apply? And then the other question is, so what? What does this mean for me today? What does this mean for us as his believers? And so as we close today, I want to try to make sure that we will answer both of those questions. As we see the big picture here, this passage is the seriousness and the reality of sin and hell and how they affect the life of both the believer and the unbeliever. So how does the cross play into the reality of sin and the reality of hell? For the believer... As we look at our own lives, 
And God begins to show us in his loving discipline those things in our life that are enticing us towards sin. Let us run to the cross of Christ and find ourselves on our knees in repentance. It arise in the strength that can only come from him to cut those things out that we may pursue our heavenly Father. Perhaps God has made us aware of one that we enticed to sin. And we bring that relationship to the cross to allow His love and grace to wash over it that we may come back to them and seek that from them and renew that relationship and restore that faith. For the believer who looks at their life and realizes that they have been choosing sin more times than not and that their saltiness is beginning to deteriorate. Let us find ourselves at the foot of the cross in repentance, being washed clean and restored because here on earth there is nothing that can restore saltiness to salt. But in our Heavenly Father, there is more than enough to go around and allow Him to restore us into that place, to step away from being lukewarm and let the cross ignite those flames of faith again in us. For the one who does not believe, it is perhaps hearing for the first time the true reality of hell and of sin, and that sin leads to death and eternal suffering. And we find ourselves at the foot of the cross to receive the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers to you today. In Scripture, it tells us that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because what we have done, but because He loved us. And it is what He has done that sets us free. That the reality of Gehenna is no longer a reality for you. The reality of heaven is found here in a Savior. So as we pursue God and work to live our lives in faithful obedience to Him, we will continue to be the salt of the earth seasoned with the gospel, living lives that do not discourage young believers, but rather encourage them and challenge them to grow in their own faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. No matter the cost, Father, I will follow you.